Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And my guest today is Danny Lennon. He has a formal scientific background in academia, completing a master's degree in nutritional science as well as producing media content as the likes of his uh, Sigma Nutrition Radio. Uh, Danny has also worked as a performance nutritionist to professional MMA fighters, professional boxers, and competitive powerlifters. He has also consulted several teams in a number of sports. So welcome on to the show, Danny. Thanks for having me, James. Delighted to be on to chat with some stuff with you, so uh, thanks for having me. So first of all, um, talk to me how about how did you come about going into academia and obviously progressing on to do an MSc in nutrition? Yeah, so I think it was just, uh, for me, my main interest was always sports. So I played a ton of different sports. So I played quite a lot of football growing up. Um, when I went to college, started doing some MMA and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Um, obviously, now I'm doing quite a lot of powerlifting. Um, but mainly, like that was my main interest all the time, just playing sports. And so... Um, when I went to college originally, it was to do a, a degree in biology and physics education. Um, so the original idea was to maybe go and do a physical education uh, degree, but uh, ended up that uh, I came to do a science education course instead uh, with the idea of becoming a teacher. So um, during that time, uh, when I started to learn about reading research and the scientific method and, and just how to interpret science correctly, just really as a kind of a side hobby to help myself, I was like, okay, how can I read some science and some research that's actually going to help my performance uh, in the gym or, or on the field? And so then started to get into more stuff around sports nutrition and then nutrition in general for health. I just found it really fascinating. And so it became a real kind of a hobby area for me and I was doing a ton of reading uh, on that stuff whilst I completed my degree. Um, ended up teaching as a, as a, a secondary school teacher then for a year after that, after I graduated but knew I wanted to come back to nutrition because it was just what I was, I was most passionate about. So after that first year, I ended up quitting teaching, went back to uh, uni to do a, a master's in, in nutrition. Um, and then from there, like, the rest is history, did that and kind of ended up coming about with Sigma Nutrition. And it's all kind of grown from there. But um, originally, the, the the kind of goal going in was to, to do science education, to be a teacher, and then just loved science in, in general. Uh, combine that with my other passion for nutrition, and then uh, here we are. So can you talk a little bit more about Sigma Nutrition, obviously from more so the podcast for the people that don't know about that? Yeah, sure. So Sigma Nutrition, uh, as a company, essentially what we try and do is put out really good educational material for people. So we'll have quite a lot of our uh, audience would be maybe fitness professionals or coaches or other nutritionists or really just people that are really deeply interested in their own nutrition and I just love learning stuff. So we put out things like articles and we do seminars, but probably what we've become most known for is the podcast Sigma Nutrition Radio. Um, where I try and really get interviews with top academics and the top researchers in different fields uh, and try and connect what they're doing in the lab 
to and, and bring it to, to people who maybe aren't going to be exposed to these people in general um, because I think there's a lot of great information out there but it's just maybe not as accessible uh, it's often kept within universities or kept to scientific conferences and so trying to kind of bridge that gap I suppose between what's being done and what we're seeing in research um, to what people can actually start using and that, that's the kind of main goal and and uh, we're at 177 episodes right now um it's been going for the last three years and uh yeah it's uh it's fun and uh i enjoy doing it so um that i think that's probably what we're most known for at this point and in terms of the podcast danny um what are some of the things like the difficult sides of producing stuff that people might not think of i think the the one thing that um i think I've done a good job on it and that I pay a lot of attention to, but it's probably one thing that's maybe not so easy is just generally the consistency of being able to have something at a regular time every week, week on week, all throughout the year. Um, and so I tried to make it a big um, goal that every Tuesday there was going to be an episode out. And I think um, pretty much, I'd say like 98% of the time that's been achieved. And I think that consistency is probably what's helped the show quite a lot. But I think it's something that um, people don't realize. Um, and then just the, 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 I think the researching part of it as well. So uh, I put quite a lot of time into uh, thinking deeply about what questions I want to ask, uh, reading the researchers that, the, that those researchers have produced, looking at that topic in general, um, and just trying to make myself as well informed before the interview as possible. I like none of that is is ever shown, um, and some of what I learned might not even be um, shown in the episode because I might be throwing out just a couple of one liner questions. Uh, but I think it just allows me to ask uh, more insightful questions once I've quite a lot of research done. So I think that that's probably the biggest time commitment that people don't see is how much time goes into preparing. Uh, an episode so um that but that'd be the first thing that comes to mind anyway and you've gone on to work with uh mma professionals and you know like combat sports um mm. i don't know if you'd seen the documentary the bbc put out or i'm gonna say a month ago so you know the weight cutting one right i've seen people post about it i've seen some of the snippets but i haven't watched it the full way through yet so uh i do need to sit down and watch that uh to see what went on but i have seen people post some stuff about it so what i was going to ask you and, and it's probably a little bit difficult question now because you've not seen the whole show is what was to get your take on obviously you you've you've obviously brought a book out mm. um on on the topic uh it was to get your take on the documentary um where, where i saw a problem with it from myself was he allowed himself to balloon up to a weight I think it was 80 or 90 kilos so way, way above his natural body weight and then he had to get down to off the top of my head I think something like under 70 kilos the night before the fight but then they're allowed to put the weight back on so I thought mm. it was hard to get my mind around that as yeah to, so um, I, I can talk to maybe the way we approach this and, and some of the mistakes we see with people trying to make weight for combat sports like that in that obviously like you say if there's if there's 24 hours or more between their weigh-in and the fight they do have quite a lot of time to rehydrate and refuel after the weigh-in so it allows them to be able to do these dramatic weight cuts um, where I think some of the problem is is a lot of fighters rely purely on dehydration alone so they will 
restrict their water. They'll do a lot of uh, induced sweating via exercise or work in a sauna and try and drop like quite a considerable amount of weight via dehydration alone. Whereas the way we try and approach it is what are all the things we can do that over a short number of days are going to influence someone's body weight that can get that down as low as possible. So that means that we can still use some dehydration, but maybe not as drastically as others. So for us, we start with the idea that ideally as an upper range uh, from a week out from the weigh-in, we want the athlete to be about uh, an 8% of their body weight drop away. Um, now for some athletes, they can tolerate going 10% and that can be perfectly fine, but we certainly see that as our most upper range. We don't want them to be anywhere above 10% uh, of a body weight drop in that last kind of seven days. Um, and then really that kind of acute weight cut for the, that last week is a process that's done over, like we say, a number of days rather than just one day beforehand and it includes a number of things outside of dehydration. So we do do some, um, water loading and then water restriction for, for some dehydration purposes. Um, we'll might use some, uh, like some light exercise or, or even some sauna use on the morning of the weigh-in, for example. But outside of those things, we also will deplete the athlete of their glycogen stores. So all the carbohydrate that's stored in their muscle, we can deplete that by putting them on a very low carbohydrate diet for a week. That loses glycogen from the muscle. There's water that's associated with each of those glycogen molecules, so they lose that as well. So it can lose up to a couple of kilos just from doing that alone. Um, we'll do other things like use a low residue diet or a low fiber diet. Uh, and so while fiber intakes are really healthy and, and a good idea in the long term, if you cut your fiber dramatically low for even like two to three days, what ends up happening is some of the residue that's left in someone's intestinal tract, they end up losing a lot more of that. There's not as much residue hanging around in the, in the intestinal tract. So that could lose a 1% of their body weight from doing that alone. And then we'll obviously do some things like look at whether they're taking creatine, for example, we might take that out for a while. Um, and these different strategies to try and acutely drop their body weight. And then once they've weighed in, we can obviously reintroduce carbohydrate, reintroduce water, reintroduce electrolytes, and get them refueled back up. But uh, I think it's that strategy or, or the thing where I think we differ from a lot of the um, poor weight cuts that we see is, one, just how much weight someone actually wants to cut, uh, and then two, the strategies they're using, so not being solely reliant on, on dehydration. And Danny... Um with the ones that still focus more on dehydration as their method to weight cut, is it a, a sense of, um, how would I put it, uh, they're stuck in kind of a Stone Age mentality to a certain extent and not uh, broadening their, their knowledge base? I think it's maybe, yeah, it just might not be an awareness that there's other ways to, to drop weight extremely quickly. So, um People will know like in the longer term, if they want to lose body fat or just drop body weight, then just eating less food will do that. But if you've only got a few days, then just eating a bit less food probably isn't going to make a dramatic difference. But so then they think, OK, I'll get my weight down purely from just dehydrating myself um, and not eating any food. Whereas we know that you can actually allow them to eat more calories uh, than they normally would over those last few days if they make some modifications. So like it, we're keeping it low carbohydrate, we do low fiber diet for a few days, we maybe reduce our sodium intake and all these things can acutely drop it. So I, I think it's just a case of maybe not aware of these different tools that are available. And um, 
like uh, we still use a significant degree of our weight cut via dehydration. So I'm not saying it's something they need to avoid, um, but we do it at a rate that knowing the time frame they have. So if it is 24 hours, we'll have a good idea of, okay, how much dehydration is actually going to be uh, to a point where we can rehydrate them fully, that they're not going to suffer any performance detriment and not getting themselves into negative health uh, uh, situations as well. Um, and so knowing that we will still use dehydration, but because we're using all the other strategies with it, it's going to make it a lot easier, I think, to drop the weight that they need to. And I think what the program raised a good point was, and some of the listeners not might not know about it, is I think I think about two or three fighters have died from this process because uh, obviously you're getting your, your body into a state of shock to a certain extent because it's it's not designed to uh get rid of that rid of that much water in that, that right. kind of short space of time. Yeah, and it's just these really severe dehydration and you see that unfortunately the cases where a couple of people have died. Um but maybe what's not as kind of publicized then is just the amount of people that are doing dangerous practices at, at fight shows probably every week that are, are on, at the very least uh, a kind of best case scenario are just having a really poor performance because of a poor weight cut. But on the other side, you've got people have real negative health issues. Um, and then if you even think about combat sports in general, uh, the importance of fluid around the brain to protect that. Once you have someone completely dehydrated, there's no fluid in around the brain. So every impact is much worse because the brain can actually move and rattle around and hit off the skull a lot easier. Um, and so there's some really negative issues that, that can be correlated with it. Um, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have any athletes cut any weight. We would just weigh them in just as they're walking into the ring or into the cage. I think that would get rid of all the health concerns. But uh, practically, that's just probably not possible at the moment. And fighters are still going to cut weight and they're still going to cut quite a lot of weight. So our job as performance nutritionists is, okay, how can we manage this and allow them to cut as much weight as they want, but still in as safe a manner as possible if you are going to dehydrate? Because it's never going to be perfectly safe, but we can make it as safe as as we can by by having, I think, uh, realistic amounts of weights to drop one week out. And Danny, to get your opinion on this question... Uh, would you believe it's a case of the athlete wants to cut and obviously in most cases drop a weight class because they want to be uh, to some extent um, more powerful, um, what's the word I want, power to weight ratio. So if they're a little bit stronger and they go down a weight class, they can be a little bit more advantageous. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if we think about if someone is between two weight classes, if they maintain their exact performance but fight at a a lower weight class, they're essentially going to be fighting smaller people. Uh, And we know that just purely they're going to have more muscle mass, they're going to be generally bigger than their opponent. And these are all going to be things that are actually have an impact when you're in a fight, right? So the idea of how weight cutting probably originally came around was that, okay, if I can dramatically drop my weight artificially, I suppose, for these for this time frame, weigh in and then come back to my quote unquote normal weight, then I'm essentially competing in a weight class below what I'm, I actually am. And so that person is going to have a massive size advantage over their opponent. 
Um, whereas now, because everyone weight cuts, it's not really as much as a size advantage. It's merely that if you don't do a weight cut, you're going to be at a disadvantage because you're going to be probably a lot smaller than your opponent. They're going to have more muscle mass. They're going to be bigger. Um, and generally, that, particularly for MMA, that's going to be a big issue, especially if you get into a lot of grappling. Um, that can have a, a large impact. So fighters have to feel a need that they're going to have to do the these weight cuts because if they can still perform at their best, then obviously the lower weight class is better. Um, but they have to realize then that that doesn't always mean that going down a weight class is a good idea because some people try and do it and then have really poor performance. And we can point to loads of examples where people have not cut much weight at elite levels and still done really, really well because they were able to perform better. Uh, so one good example that comes to mind is uh, Frankie Edgar, who now competes in, a, in the featherweight division in the UFC, but was a former lightweight champion. So he won the title at 155 pounds, but his normal walk around weight during his camp was maybe like two pounds over. It was like 157. So he cut virtually no weight in comparison to others, which meant he was a lot smaller. But when you look at his game, he was this guy that was had constant movement, very fast, moving in and out, not getting hit very good defensive wrestling so wasn't getting tied up and, and, and grappled and so he was able to have his absolute best performance because he wasn't suffering from uh, a large weight cut and um, so there's cases like that where it does happen and um, that's not a typical thing to happen generally there's some weight cutting will be be an advantage but uh, i think getting people away from the idea that the the goal should be to cut as much weight as possible that's not the the goal the goal is to cut as much weight as you can while still performing at your best. So if you cut five kilos and you know you can perform well the next day, then great, that's a good cut for you. But if you try and cut seven kilos or eight kilos and then find that your performance is really, really terrible because that because you can't refuel and, and rehydrate properly or you had too much stress in your body because the weight cut was so hard, then you know that's too much of a stretch. And then actually doing a smaller weight cut is going to be your best strategy. So it all comes down to, I think, one thing we really try and hammer home with the fighters is to get them away from the idea of seeing their nutrition and their weight cut strategy as simply, how do I cut the most weight possible? Or how do I weigh in at the lowest weight? Instead thinking, how do I use these things to help me perform at my best? And then you start reframing. It's like, okay, maybe you don't need to cut as much weight as this because if you go in maybe the next weight class up, you might perform way better and feel better. Um, or in the off-season, you might just diet down a bit more to be a bit leaner so you don't have to cut as much weight via dehydration and you're going to feel better in the ring or the cage. And Danny, um, from from the documentary I was watching, obviously the BBC we've been bringing up a little bit, um, what perplexed me to a certain extent was obviously the individual did the weight cut, did the weigh-in, and then they were allowed to put the weight back on. So why why is that the case? Yeah, I mean it's just uh, it's it's a good question because I mean in recent years there's been a lot of discussion, particularly in the media, of uh, knowing that in combat sports we have this real issue uh, of health concerns with weight cutting. So how do we improve it? Um, and like I said before, the 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 one way that would guarantee to get rid of it is to get rid of uh, the chance for someone to do a weight cut by having their weigh in immediately as they're about to compete but i think there's a lot of stuff that is maybe uh, at this time point just the way things are set up that is going to logistically stop that from happening 
Um, there's the whole cultural things around um, the way just things have been done. There's always been a way in the day before. Uh, when you look at, say, something like the UFC, they obviously now have a whole event around the weigh-in day where fans come in and they can watch the weigh-ins. They stream the weigh-ins live. There's kind of like Q&A with the fighters. It's a whole separate thing that they're having that's part of that weigh-in day. Um, but even more so then, if we were to suddenly get rid of weigh-ins and then everyone just fights at their normal weigh-in weight, now we have to change all the weight classes and all the champions because they're all going to change. So everyone's going to be in a different weight class. Um, so I think it's probably a, a logistical thing that's holding it back. Um, but if people really wanted to get rid of the issues, it would be a case of let's set up a system where a fighter is just going to fight at the weight that they normally are. Uh, and the only way you're going to make that happen is to have the weigh in as close to the event as possible. Um, so, I mean, we see this in something like uh, some amateur boxing or even some uh, amateur MMA events that have their weigh-ins like two hours before the fights. Um, it just means people can't cut as much weight, and so it decreases a bit. But then you have the flip side that people still try and cut weight, and they don't have enough time to re rehydrate, so they're putting themselves at even more risk now. So how do we get to a point where the time frame is too short for someone to even consider cutting weight so they don't do it? Um, so yeah, I, I think that's the the reason why it's it's not done in that fashion it's purely just because kind of logistically it's hard to change now um but i, I think there's probably going to be some solutions i know the ufc have tried to in, include things like having uh the maximum weight you should be away from your weight class i think it's around the eight percent mark that we mentioned as well um on the tuesday of fight week um and if someone's above that or if they're too far away from the weight class they have to get medical supervision for the week um so there's uh, some changes like that are starting to come in. They're starting to do earlier weigh-ins on the day before fights. So instead of waiting till 4 p.m., they're now doing it at 10 in the morning. So it means just more refuel time for the athlete before the fight. Um, so these things are potentially beneficial, but they they still don't take away from some of the risks because fighters are still going to cut considerable amount of weight. And anytime someone cuts weight, there's obviously some risks associated with that. But does it come back to this mentality to a certain extent in sport of trying to get that one percent yeah for sure i mean that's essentially the the only reason someone would cut weight is to this is going to give me a, a, an advantage or like i said before at least it's going to mean my opponent doesn't have an advantage over me and if i don't cut this much weight then they're going to have that one percent extra edge or however m much people associate with it with so it, it's just down to that it's just like this is just part of the job that I need to do in order to get as much of an advantage as I can. I need to be as big as I, I can for my weight class. And that means cutting considerable amounts of weight, even if it's a, a horrible process to go through and it is really tough. Uh, it's just something that might give me an edge on, on fight night. And, and that's what it is. It's just, just this, yeah, I think you've got it right. It's an athlete mentality. But I, I think I think the only sports outside of combat one where i would see it would be a problem like that would be rowing with lightweights but then they've got a case of a split season so winter they'll be well that much a little bit heavier i think as you said mm. they're probably like a few kilos over and then obviously when the race season comes around that's when they've got to make weight okay the case in uh is if they don't, okay, all they have to do is compete as a, as a heavyweight. Okay, they're at a massive disadvantage being, in some cases, 20 to 30 kilo lighter than their opponent. Mm. So that, I think, 
like you say, with the the mentality, they're going to do everything within their power to make sure they make weight. So that the and it's the same with the the coxes would have them to make make the weight as well. And you're seeing what they have to restrict themselves to at times. You're thinking, you sure you can survive on what's on that plate? Yeah, and I think that that's the problem of uh, the methods that people are using are really kind of counterproductive. Uh, and not taking a long-term view of, okay, what do I need to do to manage a certain body weight? Um, and instead, realizing that it probably a lot of time doesn't have to come down to like starvation and not drinking any fluid uh, just to make weight, that there's these other things that they can do to still be able to consume sufficient amount of calories, but they can acutely drop their, their weight class, or just having a better handle in the long term of how do I stay relatively lean without starving myself and still performing well? Um and then, yeah, some people do get caught in a place where they're kind of between two weight classes. So they have that really uh, tough dilemma of, okay, do I feel more comfortable and go up to the weight class above me, but know that I might be a bit smaller than, than those guys? Or do I go through a really hard weight cut to get down? So some people are unfortunately in that position that their walk around weight is just banging between two, two weight classes. Um, but I, th- I think a lot of the problems can be offset with the smart overall nutrition approach um, and understanding how to manipulate their body weight um, through these different strategies rather than just sit, like starving themselves with barely any food. Um, so, I mean, race jockeys are another great example of this. Some really like terrible dietary practices of basically existing on close to nothing. Um, and with their weigh-ins, because um, I talked to Graham Close about this before, they had like their weigh-ins before and after a race, and they can't have gained more than a, a certain number of like a, a couple of pounds versus when they did their weigh-in before the race. So if they're weighing in a bit dehydrated and underfed, they can't go and drink loads of food and, and have some water before they go and compete. And then the race itself is actually pretty taxing, right? Uh, or relatively taxing, considering that they probably haven't eating any food for the day um, and just really poor nutrition practices but they showed with a case study that they got guys just eating um, more protein managing their body weight via tracking their, their calories not trying to starve themselves having more regular meals and were able to improve a lot of their health markers and still keep their body comp- uh, composition good um, rather than the typical thing of like not eating all day and then like having a, a crappy meal that night which is typical in race jockey. So uh, there's, there's lots of sports where, where it can be a problem uh, and body composition management is, is kind of a, a key thing, but it, it starts from having that long-term view of, of and that, that understanding of how to properly manage it um, rather than resorting to crazy kind of starvation tactics. And would it be a case of a bit of, tr- if you did a bit of trial and error in the off season as to, getting your nutrition right, would that be a better way of probably doing something? Because obviously yeah. there's no um, simple solution for everybody. Everybody's slightly different as how they will respond to manipulating their diet. Yeah, sure. Uh, and this is one thing that we kind of recommend to all combat sport athletes is if they're in a period where they don't have any fight coming up and they are planning to do a weight cut for the next fight that they haven't done before, or they're planning to drop more weight or they're, trying a new weight cut protocol so they can try and drop a bit more, then we ideally get them to try and do a test run of that. So they don't have any fight coming up, take a week that they can kind of do a a test run of what they're planning as their protocol, see how much weight they drop without going completely crazy and like feeling relatively okay. 
and then do a rehydration and then the next day what would be classes or fight day then do some sort of testing to see how they feel so maybe that's a sparring session to see how they're performing how they're feeling do they have enough energy and then kind of gauge then based on that is that weight cut protocol I use and the amount of weight that they cut is that adequate for them uh, and if it is then they know that they can use that same strategy when it comes around to a fight and if it's not adequate then they know okay maybe I shouldn't be cutting this amount of weight I sh- or I might need to do something different to make it easier uh, but yeah we definitely recommend people do like test weight cuts in, in the off season or, or when they don't have a fight coming up so it'd be a good example to some extent if you kind of compared that with the German Republic of kind of tracking their nutrition with say the likes of uh, fitness like fitness pal app and something like that yeah, sure. And that's what we try and get our athletes to do is to collect lots of different data so that they can compare what they did, see how it worked, and then they'll know what to do in the future. So they will have like tracking their body weight in the morning and evening over the course of that, that weight cut week, writing down exactly what they're eating, the amount of fluid that they're drinking, et cetera, et cetera, writing down exactly what they did. And then at the end of that week then, uh, in, and then after making some notes on how they performed, they can have an idea of, okay, if I do, if I eat these certain things and my fluid is like this and I do this weight cut protocol, my body weight goes from this to this over this many days. And so then they can plan for their future when they have a, another fight coming up. They can plan, okay, I know that in this many days, this is what I'll typically lose um, doing this type of protocol. So they can kind of manage to say, okay, by one week out from my weigh-in, I need to be at this body weight in order to be able to make weight effectively. Um, so, and that all comes down from like collecting data, like you said, that could be from tracking your food in my fitness pal. It could be from getting their body weight measurements. It could be having a food diary. All all that data is going to be really useful, so they can kind of replicate the weight cut over and over again. Okay, that's quite interesting at that point that you raised. Obviously, to it, it's I think it's the only way that you could in all reality, be able to compare and contrast what worked and what didn't because you've got something that's black and white in front of you as to, well, this is what I took on XYZ uh, against ABC. Uh, This is how I responded and you can kind of see which works best. Yeah, because that's the thing. We we see a lot of uh, individual uh, variation between people. Of, of how they respond to a certain kind of weight cut protocol and different people respond differently and they may tweak things to suit them best or find different strategies work well for them. Um, and so doing collecting this data and, and doing test runs and, and tracking it even when they have a, a fight coming up is going to be all just prove useful stuff that they can in the future say, okay, what if I change this thing or I did this differently or whatever it is. And then they can over time build a more and more a sort of personalized weight cut strategy for themselves uh, as opposed to using uh, an exact template because just people are going to react differently and drop different amounts of weights over certain time frames. Okay. Uh, and then this part of the podcast, I like it to open up the uh, podcast for people to ask questions to the guests. So obviously with, with your knowledge background and having um, done your MSc uh, researching in vitamin D, uh, directly under the world-renowned researcher, Professor Kelvin Cashmore. And the question I was asked uh, by Holly Hudson, she asked, what is the right amount for an adult in the UK to have for vitamin D year-round? Obviously, the government guideline is 10 micrograms from a day from October to April. 
uh, I've done a little bit more research around that, and obviously, the, unfortunately, the only accurate way you can know how much you need to do uh, to take, sorry, is to visit your your GP. And yeah. I generally recommend to my clients between two thousand to two thousand uh, IU's a day. What is your take on that? Yeah, so I think you have it spot on uh, there, James, in that the, the best way is to really look at someone's uh, blood levels, uh, vitamin D. Um, it's a pretty easy test to go and get done. I think there's a lot of places now that you can go and just get a, um, bloods done by a nurse. It's like 20, 20 euros or, or 20 pounds sterling. Um, or like your GP will be able to sort you out with a vitamin D test. Um, and that's probably an accurate gauge of where you are. Uh, and based on that, you someone might see that they're at a normal level, they're in an acceptable range, or they might be deficient. Um, and the thing with supplementation then becomes of where you actually are on that spectrum. So if someone has a, an adequate amount of, of <clears throat> Uh, their vitamin D status is adequate, then it might be still be a good idea during like the winter months or when there's not much sunlight out, or if someone has a job where they're inside all the time, to maybe supplement with a kind of a maintenance dose. Um, and somewhere like you mentioned around like 2000 is probably fine for vast majority of people. Um, if someone has a, a deficiency and their vitamin D is very low, then they might do well to have go through a period of a much higher uh, dosage. Um, because we, we tend to see that for a lot of people, even taking the dose that you mentioned is recommended by various different institutions and, and that gets recommended as uh, this is a dose to take for vitamin D uh, or an intake, even if someone were to take that, a lot of the time it's not enough to get them out of deficiency and they actually need quite large doses, um, certainly above what is typical for the RDA. So uh, we, we've had people that might even use uh, – 5,000 I use a day for an extended period of months. Uh, you can also use that as a bolus dose. So some people, rather than taking every day, could take it in one weekly dose um, of something like 30,000 I use. And it seems to have um, a similar effect. And some studies even show that it might be even a slight benefit to some of the bolus dose. But generally, it's going to be the same effect. Um, so it, it can get quite high. And again, even if someone is deficient, they might take extremely high doses for a short period of time to boost it back up. So it really all depends on what someone's start point is. Um, and then once you know your start point of your blood levels, then the next thing is to look at, okay, what other factors might affect it? Um, is it winter or summer right now where you are? How much time do you spend outside? Are you going to get a lot of time in the sun? Are you going on holiday to a sunny climate soon? Um, all these things are going to influence the effect it's going to have on your, your vitamin D. So depending on those will will dictate how uh, likely it is you should or you need a supplement um, to, to, to take. Um, and, and then it really comes down to, okay, how do you manage – Probably, again, there's different cutoff points from different institutions, whether that's the Institute of Medicine or different government boards, um, that a lot of them put try and get people above 50 nanomoles per liter. Um, I think getting like 75 nanomoles per liter uh, above that level is probably a good idea. And so really just seeing where someone's starting off from and then looking at the factors that are going to affect them and then start using some supplementation and maybe every few months testing again to see how that affects that certain person um but yeah that's that's the starting point get a blood test see where you are and then base your supplementation on where your current levels are at and then also uh how much sun you're likely to get over the next few months 
where you are. And then we know that things like uh, ethnicity and skin color can affect um, someone's absorption of vitamin D f- from the sun. So it makes some people more likely that they might want to use a supplement as well. So all those factors, but like you said, the, the easiest way is get a blood test and then supplement until you're at an adequate level. The also the one you didn't touch upon was the elderly population as well. Yeah, so that's a really interesting one. And part of the, the research that we did was to map out uh, different responses from different people. Um, and you do see that there's differences uh, with elderly population. And, and then generally you look at... Um, to compound that, you have a lot of the stuff where a lot of elderly people end up being inside quite a lot anyway. Um, particularly then you say people who are, for example, in a, in a nursing home, uh, a lot of them can go pretty much all the time without getting outside for a lot of the year. Um, and so that kind of compounds the effect. So uh, there's differences in all those different populations. So all these different things are going are gonna to play a role. And then there's even like genetic differences in how different people will absorb it based on their exposure to sun, for example. Um, so, yeah, the most accurate way is to, to get a blood tests and to, to check them to see after a while how, how you're faring and how that's affecting it. It's quite a, a difficult one, really, because in the past, the government, well, we'll say governments, have been uh, put the prerequisite that you want to obviously slip, slop, slap in the summer months to avoid the sun. But then you've got, on the other hand, Oh, you need to get sun exposure so you don't become deficient in vitamin D. So it's kind of a catch twenty-two. Yeah, I think that's um, perhaps where there's a lot of this disconnect and, and some of the debates uh, pop up is when people are talking about sunlight exposure and obviously like cancer risk, for example, um, and not getting too much of it. Whereas I think for most people, um, some degree of sun exposure directly without any sunscreen is, is probably uh, going to be useful like we say for boosting up vitamin d but just getting to the point where they're not going out uh, and exposing themselves for long enough to get, get properly uh, sunburnt for example um so just get enough of an exposure and depending on where they are in the world and the intensity of the sun at that time the time of day the length of time will vary um, but just probably enough that they, they get some of that exposure to, to good quality sunlight, but just not enough to cause actually like any sunburn and so on. So maybe it's a case of getting some exposure without any kind of sunscreen or whatever. Uh, and then after a certain period of time, then, then putting some on for the rest of the day uh, to prevent any uh, kind of, of those downsides. Um, but like you say, uh, there is a kind of a lot of confusion because of that. Um, these two opposite messages, I suppose, for, from from different fields. But I, th- I think I read somewhere you wanted to look to have between, I think on, depending on what skin complexion you had and what kind of ha- hair colour you had, it was, I think, for somebody that's fair-skinned and I think red-haired, I think it was about 10 to 15 minutes a day, and then for somebody else it was up to half an hour. Right, yeah. So using those as kind of an idea during those times of getting some of that sun exposure and then maybe covering up afterwards rather than someone lying out in the sun for hours on end uh, like with, with just a pair of shorts on. So I think um, having those in mind of getting some sun exposure, um, but, but even if they're using some sunscreen, it'd probably be if they're out for many hours on end, they're probably getting some, some degree of that is going to be coming through. But um, I definitely think some exposure without that for those kind of time frames you mentioned is pro- probably a decent idea. 
And then if we tie in the the MMA research you've done and, and then the time you did of studying vitamin D, is there any... Because obviously the fighters are going to be in... How would I put it? Um, their camps are for a long period of time. So they're gonna, in some periods of time, they're going to be inside for a lot. Have you, have you seen, in some cases, they have a deficiency? Yeah, so it's actually uh, been relatively... Uh, com- not super common, but like enough that it's being noticeable that they do have, uh, what I would say, suboptimal vitamin D levels. And this is kind of across nearly all athletes. Um, we know some athlete populations are kind of worse than others. So we mentioned earlier uh, jockeys, they tend to have really poor vitamin D status, um, purely because, probably from a combination of factors. But even if you think of when they're outside, they're completely covered up all the time. Um, and then they're just their diets in general are, are poor. Um but definitely with our fighters, it, it can be an issue where it's a bit lower than we want. And there's lots of then research showing why that is going to be a negative for uh, an athlete in general. So not only um, the, the kind of all the health benefits of vitamin D, but we know it can play a role on, say, muscle function. Um, and we can play a role in uh, immune function. So in order of keeping the athlete healthy, keeping them away from getting ill, uh, which is obviously a higher risk for someone doing tons of activity and maybe dieting. Um, we want to try to optimize our immune system, so getting enough vitamin D, and obviously if it pl- plays a role in these other things that we know, like immune function, bone health, et cetera, et cetera, all important parts of it. So, um, but but yeah, you make a good point that we do see athletes from time to time that that do have very low vitamin D status. Well, you bring a big. Good point there with bone health. I'd say with combat sports of the likes of MMA, um, Thai boxing, and things like that, obviously the, the contact bone to bone is very much uh, uh, a prerequisite of the sport. So you, you see, or if we bring kind of Thai boxing into it, you, you see mm-hmm. like the extreme videos on YouTube of leg breaks. I, I, you couldn't probably pinpoint and say, well, this is the reason solely as to why that that happened but in some cases could you possibly kind of put a marker on they were possibly deficient in vitamin d i mean it's possible i mean a lot of them are just going to be kind of freak accidents where you have a collision of just like these uh like when you think of just how hard the shin bone is it's like these two baseball bats being smashed against each other Um, and then sometimes it's just there's going to be a break um, but potentially it could be that someone's weak link, there was something going on. Um, but I think of even just generally how to build those stronger bones. Um, if you look at how uh, Thai boxers can kind of uh, kick with their, their shins and be able to block with their shin over time without being as sensitive. Of, like if anyone else tries to do it, like the first time you try and check a kick with your shin, you'll know all about it. It's one of the most painful things ever. Um, but then they, they get desensitized to it. And so... It's just over time from them constantly kicking a heavy bag or these old videos you see of people in Thailand kicking bamboo trees or whatever, uh, that this constant contact with their shin is going to desensitize it uh, and make it stronger. And so whilst they're doing that, there are, there's obviously going to be some sort of very minor uh, injury, should we say, to, to the bone or kind of like uh, causing just a very, very... Uh, mild amount of stress to it that causes the adaptation for it to get stronger and then for the nerves to deaden in the leg. Uh, and so, yeah, if we're going to have uh, the, the, the bone trying to get stronger, then it makes sense to have all the substrates around that's going to help 
to with that rebuilding process and vitamin d is kind of crucial in that so vitamin d we also vitamin k is crucial in that process as well and they they will allow get calcium to to play its role in improving bone health so um yeah i think that's a really valid point that you make but i think when you say with compact contact sports combat sports sorry uh, it would be the same with uh karate jiu-jitsu it's 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 kind of uh, same with taekwondo um in most cases, people are doing it from such a young age, do, practicing the techniques. I think it, you get engrossed and get used to the, the okay, it's going to hurt at the beginning, but like with blocking techniques and all that. But as time goes by, as you get better, okay, it's going to, like you said, it's going to be lessened to certain, a certain extent. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially if you're looking at like uh, leg kicks and checking leg kicks with someone's shin, I think a lot of it is just down to just the nerves aren't uh, as sensitive anymore and essentially like are deadening the nerves from this constant kicking uh, against like a heavy bag or like we say something like that. Um, and so they, they just aren't going to get that same sensation after a while um, and it allows them to be able to take that. I mean, it's still going to be sore, but certainly not to the same very sensitive feel that someone gets when they even like get a very slight connection on their, on their shin. Um, I mean, if someone does it just as a practice, like a shot, a, a very slight, uh, shin on shin contact is going to be very sensitive and, and sore. Um, whereas I think it, yeah, it's a lot of it just nerves are going to be getting, uh, desensitized over time. But I think it comes back to that mentality. It's, it's, do you want to do that? Obviously it's pain associated with it. And, well, if we kind of bring up Thai boxing again, well, for the people in Thailand, it's kind of their national sport. So with them, it's yeah. loads of other things come with it. Tradition, um, obviously fame to a certain extent, because it's yeah. being such a, well, being their prominent national sport, it's, uh, if I kind of bring up, um, oh God, what's his name? Idris Elba did um, one for Sky... I think before it was just after Christmas, and he he went into what would have been MMA uh, mm. over a course of if I get this right, I think he did it over a years period, going from amateur to pro, and I I, I was quite interested to see how he'd get on. I think well, it's not gonna he may lose at the end, and it's kind of a story from him mm. taking up the challenge and. Mm. To see him actually win the fight against one that was a, a professional for, gosh, it was like it was about five six years, but he was kind of using, obviously, the fame and notoriety of Idris Elba as a film star right. to kind of propel himself back up. Okay, what what has it done to his career by losing? Who knows? But right. you're thinking, well, it's got you back in the spotlight. So, okay, you've lost to somebody, but they've put in the hard yards to get into prime physical condition that they didn't. Well, he won the fight, so he's of their level of right on, on the money. So it's kind of it was kind of seeing. Okay, he went to where it is. Well kind of combat spots is the be all and end all 
okay, that the fight didn't happen there because um, the president of Thailand had, to, had died, so they moved the fight back to the UK. Okay, there's the pressure of that being at home as an athlete is probably exponential because they deliberately did it out in Thailand so the family couldn't go and uh -huh, they yeah. asked the family not to go as well because it was that kind of stress of the family having to see the him go through obviously well beating to a certain extent isn't it because it's, yeah, it's yeah, that, yeah. that contact that contact sport and kind of seeing well you got to see it was it was quite quite interesting to see the mindset that he had to want to take up the challenge because okay there's is it because it, oh, how old is he I think he's He's coming up to, you could say it was like a midlife crisis to say. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking, what, 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 he, I think it was because he'd done MMA and like combat sports when he was younger, uh, stopped because of his film career and maybe he wanted to say, well, if I'd have continued on that journey, where might I have got to? So it was, it mm. was quite interesting to see, well, this is, you, you, you kind of don't know that kind of um, early door story until that 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 documentary. I thought it would be oh he's taking this challenge on. I'll watch this and then you learn a little bit more as to oh this is what I actually used to do. I got into a few scraps as a, as a youngster and things right. like that. So you're thinking okay, but then I did martial arts when I was younger. And you and I think you probably could attest to you're taught to not take it out out of the dojo. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But but you you make some some great points there, and I think there's a lot of this uh this this cultural uh, cultural thing within combat sports and, and particularly Thai boxing, where like you say, like uh, kicking a, a a heavy bag constantly until your, your your shins are sore, so you can kind of get used to it, or just the hard training in general, or the long runs, or the weight cutting itself, they all just see it as just part of the job. And that's a lot of what our athletes say to us, like the weight cut, yeah, it's not nice to do, but it's like just part of being part of the job. It's what I have to do and just get on with it. Um, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of element to that. And I think yeah, particularly with, with, with fighters um, and probably athletes and a lot of other sports that when there's this feeling of that you're making some sort of sacrifice that most other people don't make, there's this kind of, um, I think, a positive mental benefit to that for when you're going to go and perform. It gives them kind of a boost and it gives this kind of inbuilt confidence of, oh, I'm going above and beyond what most people are going to do. I'm putting in this tough effort. I'm doing these things that a lot of people find hard. And we even see with people with their diet, they, they prefer to have, as they get close to a fight, like super high quality food. They, they don't, even if they were uh, able to have some foods that are like, more processed or more like classic junk food, whatever people want to term it. Most fighters just don't want to do that because they feel that being like super, super strict for that time leading into the fight, it's almost this feeling of sacrifice builds into kind of having more confidence. And I think that goes across nearly all, all sports and high end athletes that they, uh, whilst there are a lot of sacrifices they make, it can be very positive for a mental aspect of, of saying, okay, I've made these sacrifices, but I've been willing to do it. So therefore, that's going to help me when I'm actually going to go, go and perform. Um, and that kind of just touched on, on what you said, that they 
they they're able to get through stuff like that that might be hard because of that. I think. But I think it it comes back to like you were saying that mental approach. It's if it was that easy to get to high levels of sport, everybody would be doing it, and they right. wouldn't have that. Um, what would be the word? To what if we kind of bring up the Thai boxing again? They're kind of like on a godlike level, especially because it's uh, they've well. If we put it on the likes of football in this country, they play and they fight in front of thousands of people. Whereas, right? Well, ex, well, beyond the Anthony Joshua and Klitschko fight, that's not right, normal. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I totally agree. It's a uh, that there's certain characteristics that I think are needed for people to be like performing at elite levels of sport. Um, obviously just like talent and genetics, uh, athletic ability, uh, long-term hard work, just constant hard work for a long period of time are all kind of part of that. But I think one of them that you definitely see a, a distinction is in kind of their mindset uh, and how they approach it uh, and just how far they're willing to go in a certain direction. Um, uh, and just the stuff they're able to do from a mindset perspective alone uh, and just how they think and approach their sport I think is just a bit different from people who are good but maybe just don't get to an elite level I think uh, and then the last question before we wrap the podcast up Danny if you had to summarize this podcast into one sentence what would that be Ooh, uh say You can make weight for combat sports a lot more effectively through using uh, a proper strategy uh, and using uh, scientific principles. Uh, that will make it a lot easier. I think something to that effect might be uh, might be a good summary. I think some uh, what, uh, good choice of words. And if somebody wanted to ask you further questions in the future, what's the best way to get in contact with you? Um, so all my stuff is just up on sigmanutrition.com so they can find stuff about the, the podcast, uh, the articles, my email address is up there, all the social media type stuff. Um, so yeah, just go onto the site, you'll find my email if they want to email me or if they just want to message me on, on uh, social media, I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so either a Sigma Nutrition Facebook page, my own personal Facebook page. Um, or just on Instagram, Danny Lennon underscore Sigma Nutrition, any of those places, uh, I'm more than happy to answer people's questions. Um, or if they're watching this on YouTube, if they leave a comment, I'll be able to come in and check in on those and, and answer them, some of those. But uh, yeah, anywhere on SigmaNutrition.com will bring you to everything else. Okay. So once again, Dan, Danny, thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, absolutely welcome. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. If you wanted some bonus content, I have now set up a Facebook group where you can interact with both the guests and I. The name of this so-called group is Mindset Game, so why not come over and check it out for yourself? And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review in iTunes, as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others, and thus helping more people which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.